The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a B&B with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. The advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Dr. Doreen Grandpichet is the Dr. Doreen is an expert in autism. Doreen Grandpichet. Dr. Grandpichet. Dr. Doreen Grandpichet. Dr. Doreen Grandpichet is a visionary in the field of autism. Now you can ask her questions on Ask Dr. Doreen. Good morning and welcome to Ask Dr. Doreen on the Autism Network. I'm Shannon Penrod and I'm sitting here with the fabulous and wonderful Dr. Doreen Grampiche. Good morning. Good morning, Shannon, and good morning, everyone. It's great to be here. Uh, it's so great to have you back in Thank studio. You. It's always great to have you no matter how we can have you, but it's extra fun when it's you're so in nice studio. It's so when we're here together. Anyway. And we're going to spend a lot of time with you next week. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I, I'm I, so excited. I know. I can't even believe we're a week away. Uh, I, I used to, I, for a while I was saying it was like getting, you know, throwing a prom. Yeah. And now I'm more like it's throwing a wedding with a bris, with a prom. <laughs> There's a lot and going you know, on. It's interesting because, of course, you selected, the. Uh, we're doing, of course, for our viewers, our 44 hours of straight programming. Podcast-a-thon. Podcast-a-thon. And, uh, you know, as, as luck would have it, the prevalence rates changed, and now it's 1 in 36. Well, we we kind of said all along, yeah. we've been saying on the show that we, we knew it was coming. Yes. Um, and we committed that we were going to do 44 hours because of the 1 in 44. Correct. No matter what. Um, but it's a kind of a big deal to me because uh, well, we're going to talk about this because yeah. uh, it's our topic today because we had a question that came in about uh, the the prevalence numbers. But before I get there, let sure. me let me pause and Dear. say <laughs> that, uh, that we're live right now on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and about a dozen other sites. Our fabulous Traven will show those to you as I continue to talk. also want to let you know, um, not only are we live right now and you guys can interact live right now, the, the live chat is open. In fact, I'm saying good morning to Andrea and to Liliana. So thrilled to have both of you with us live. Uh, and you guys can write in too if you're on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter. All you have to do is write in on that platform and it'll show up here. We have a new thing now too that you can also text us oh, from your phone. That's awesome. Uh, it, I love that. It is awesome. So um, Traven is going to, because I'm still so new at it, I think it's info at autismnetwork.com is what you text. 
and you can text your questions in that way. Perfect. It's still new to me, so forgive me if I'm not good at it yet, but we're trying to get it all warmed up for the podcast is on next week. So you guys can write in in lots of different ways. Um, but also want to say to you that not only do we do the shows live, but then they podcast, mm -hmm. uh, which means that you can download them. They're a free download wherever you get your podcast. We, for the longest time, we were uh, podcasting in both uh, audio and video. We, most of the time now we do it just audio. You guys said that you preferred that. And, but we want to let you know that these shows with all the sound and all the music and, and, all, and, and the visual, and the visual uh, are available for you in their full, um, full breadth yeah. on YouTube. So definitely check out our library of videos because, you know, not only are we doing the podcast-a-thon next week, there's a lot going on next week. Yes, it's very a, exciting. A lot, lot going on. But it, I also realized it means that we will have been on the air for 13 years. Oh, my gosh. I know. Oh, it's amazing. our 13th birthday. We are going to officially be teenagers. That's crazy. As, I, it is. It is. It really is. That's so um, exciting, though. I'm so proud of us. <laughs> I want to thank yes. you though because oh. honestly this is all you that made this possible and as you know like I, my life has changed in so many different ways over the last 13 years yeah. but this is the one consistent thing that I have continued to do and a lot of it is not only is it's a beautiful experience being able to talk to families and help people out there but it's really also because I enjoy this mm. hour with you so much mm. and you always make it so easy for me to oh, do so gosh. I really appreciate that thank you because it doesn't feel like that lately it doesn't feel like I'm making anything <laughs> easy for you I I literally no, awesome. the it's last so week great. I've been like I would fire me because <laughs> no, so I because you know you were you're in that stage of it where you're like oh Chaos, it'll yeah. all work out it'll all work out but um, there's a lot of things that we're going to be celebrating next week, including um, the podcast-a-thon. If you haven't already, if you're like, what is this thing that they're talking about, this podcast-a-thon, I really want to urge you to go to autismnetwork.com. Um, I don't like to give you all the slash things because I can't remember that myself personally. But if you go anywhere on autismnetwork.com, you'll see the neon circle that says podcast-a-thon. You can click on that. Mm -hmm. It will bring you to the landing page for the podcast-a-thon. And the big thing to do right now is to click on the hourly calendar. It's the box in the middle. It says calendar hourly. And if you go there and just scroll through the 44 hours, every time I do it, I get goosebumps because we have so many yeah. luminaries it's amazing. and more that we have not announced yet. It's, it's cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Really awesome. And actually, our next show is the morning yes. when we start the podcast this on at, yep. at later that day. Yep. And during that show, maybe we can go through the calendar and let everybody know it's Absolutely. coming. Absolutely. I'm saying good morning to Michelle as well. So check that out. Definitely um, check that out and be writing in like Michelle just did, saying hi, and then we'll say hi back to you. And you can be writing in questions right now. But we did want to start big, big news um, yeah. that their, their new prevalence numbers came out on Thursday. Um, instead of being 1 in 44 now in the United States, it's 1 in 36. And somebody wrote in a question already and said, what do the new numbers mean and what does Dr. Grant Pichet wish would happen as a result of these new numbers? Yeah. So where do you Thank want to you start? I mean, I could, I'd probably, I'll try to control me, Shannon, because I yeah. might talk the entire show now okay. about this subject. I do want to say that these new numbers are not current. These new numbers are data from 2020. Yeah. And I, I, I feel like that's a very important 
is always left out. Of course, it takes the CDC a couple of years to gather all their data and to be able to verify it and validate it and then report it to us. But with the trend, and as you know, you mentioned we have some beautiful graphics that we are borrowing from Taka. Yeah, Taka did a great and, job. And, you know, here. some of the things that you might not be able to see this on the camera here, but it is a continual increase and has been increasing uh, just con forever, right? And for me, what is really important to talk about is that I, when I started in this field, it was, and it was like late 70s, right? So 78, 79. Mm -hmm. And as I, that, at that time, I remember very, very clearly that the prevalence was around one in 15,000. And uh, the data just kind of increased from there. And then by 95, when I had already opened the first, uh, several cards actually, I opened card in 1990. And by 95, I would have had probably not sure five or ten clinics. Right. It was it all of a sudden jumped to one in ten, one in a thousand, right. and there was you know it just kind of like, and that was very shocking to us that yeah. it had increased. But then beyond that, it just every time data came out, it was more and more and more. And you know we have in ninety nine it was one in five hundred. Then two thousand two, of course, the data became one in one fifty. That, I remember, stayed for quite a while. Everybody was like, oh, 150, that's pretty uh, amazing and astonishing. And then a few years ago, as we all know, it went down to 1 in 44, which was also very, very shocking. That data came was, uh, was data from 2018. And then now, of course, 1 in 36. And this is data from 2020. So I think it's fair to assume that if something doesn't change, this number is going to continue to increase yeah. because it is a trend and it is not. And, and people always talk about, you know, what's causing this trend. And I really would love to talk about that a little bit because okay. uh, maybe 10 years ago, um, when it was something like one in 150, people started saying, oh, this must have something to do with clinicians being better at diagnosing. Mm -hmm. For a while there, actually, people were saying, oh, this has something to do with the new diagnostic criteria, because right. there was a change in the diagnostic criteria. But I will tell you guys that the change in the diagnostic criteria did not make it easier to be get the diagnosis by any means. So, in fact, in some ways, it probably made it harder. But that that aside, it, there, it was, it did, I always would respond to people and say, I have been diagnosing personally myself since 1990 or 92 or something, one or two. And how, why would people think that, you know, clinicians suddenly became wiser to it? That's really not the case. Of course, awareness has influenced pediatricians, I think, a little bit because they're training did not involve a lot of training for autism. I mean, to this day, I'm uh, very soon, very shortly, I will be doing a training for pediatricians in South Africa mm. to uh, help with screening and diagnosis because it's also increasing in other parts yeah, of the world. Of but this is not about awareness. This is not about better ability to diagnose. This is not about those things. Those things may have a small cause causative factor they might play a very small role 
uh, yes, pediatricians are now recognizing it better and are now finally diagnosing faster, perhaps. And I think that's not necessarily because they, maybe it's because they get better training, but I think it's also because they are also alarmed. Like, yeah. we're all alarmed. Yeah. Everybody's saying, what do we do now? Like, one in 36 children? Oh, my God. You know, like, that means that pretty much every classroom in the United States will have a child. You That's know, right. it's, it's scary, right? Yeah. So all of us are pretty alarmed about this. And you asked, the, or the viewer that wrote in and said, what would I have done? Like, what would I wish for, given this increase in prevalence? And And I will tell you, I think, what I wish for. I, I wish for, you know, they changed the term autism, I guess, acceptance or to awareness, or I don't know which direction it yeah. went. The three A's now. The three to A's. be politically correct, I say the three A's. It's autism ex acceptance, awareness, and action. And action. Then you get it covered. I just yeah. say the three A's. Yeah, right. And I think we are all focused, like if I, like, let me ask you, Shannon. Yeah. What is, what would you wish for? Well, I said this yesterday. There's so many things, right? But right now, I wish the talking point would be if this is if if one if one kid in every classroom is on the spectrum, then why haven't we fully funded IDEA? Okay. And we were promised by every single person running right? that it would be. So I'm asking for a call. I've already said yesterday, "Hey Joe, you said you would." Yeah. This would seem like a time to do it. I One in 36. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a drop in the bucket, but it would be a pretty healthy bucket right. to start. Right. That's me. But what about you? So, but that's, that's exactly kind of where I wanted to go yeah. is that most people will actually say, let's increase access to treatment and help. Yes. And I, I, and fully funding IDEA is one way of doing that, right? Is let's give all of our kids in schools access to the right type of intervention. Yeah. Many years ago, I said, let's, you know, God, please give us insurance funding. We got that, right? And now we have some access to insurance funding. But what I'm going to wish for today is different. I'm not going to wish for let's accept the fact that we're in 1 in 36 and get better treatment, better access. I'm going to wish for people to question why we are at 1 in 36. Let's go back and say, what did we do to our environment to make it one in 36? Let's study that. Let's accept that. Yes. Because there's so much controversy and people don't want to accept the fact that a lot of this has to do with the, in, the incredibly toxic environment we have built for ourselves, we've developed for ourselves, right? Yeah. Nobody really still associates autism with toxicity, and that's what I wish for. That's what I wish for, because if people did start to see that this has to do with, you know, like really understanding our kids are being exposed, and it's not just our kids, it's all of us. We're exposed to extremely toxic environments. Our food, I mean, I could go on and on yeah. as you know about this. Yeah. Our food, most of our food by far in the 90s percentiles are GMO, genetically modified foods, which are not getting nutrition to us. That's not only are they not bringing nutrition to us, they're causing genetic changes. They're causing inflammation for all of us. Uh, our 
soil in the U.S. is no longer, we do not have soil that is healthy, that has not been contaminated by massive amounts of pesticides. Mm -hmm. So that's another big issue. All of our food is, is really toxic. Our water source is in plastic that we know that when plastics change temperature, they become extremely toxic. So we have that. And I will be brave and say here, on top of all of that, we still overuse antibiotics. We still overuse vaccines. All of these types of things are producing toxicity for our children who are unable to detox enough, right? Yeah. Everybody can detox, but if you load them with too many toxins, eventually they're going to just not be able to detoxify. And I very strongly believe that the reason our children are developing, their brains are developing in a way that is not able to uh, adequately learn all the things that they need to is because of the exposure to toxicity, whether it's in utero or after birth, there's just a lot of toxicity. And our kids are, and, and as I said, Shannon, it's not just our kids. I mean, there's in, a massive amount of, of uh, problems with uh, pregnancy, infertility. I mean, if you saw the infertility numbers for adults right now, it would completely blow your mind. Yeah. We're talking about autism. Autism is one of the chronic problems in health that is increasing in this country. Even for you and I, I mean, you know, when we were young, the problem was not, how do I get pregnant? The problem was the other way, right? Yeah. How do I be careful? <laughs> yeah. And then if you think about like all the like when we were kids, there were no commercials on TV for probiotics, prebiotics, thousands of types of pharmaceuticals yeah. that are, that it has become just very, very difficult. And this is the result of it. So the question for me is how do we, and we have to some extent started to reverse, but how do we start to clean up our environment for our kids, right? Yes, I mean, if I knew all this stuff, you know, 40 years ago, I would have invested in Whole Foods, right? And all these, or all the company, or Sprouts, or whatever, these com yeah. companies that are now everywhere. Why yeah. are they everywhere? Does anyone ask? Why is there a whole thing about what kind of food can I eat? Why is it that everybody has gluten intolerance, everybody has case? Those are the questions that need to be asked. People need to be outraged by this. Yeah. Not just kind of, you know, we're outraged by the fact that after this, there's not enough access to care. We need to be outraged and concerned. I have uh, children who are in their 20s. I am very, very worried about them having children. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's become a crazy world. All of this makes me want to invite Dr. David Berger to be on the show with us again. We should he's doing absolutely. Some amazing research we absolutely about exactly should. What you just talked about. So, all right, David Berger, I'm going to be calling you. Um, it's uh, and thank you for all of that because I feel like a lot of people aren't brave and don't talk about things. Right. Um, right. But uh, I know I said to somebody. I, I think I said it here on the air yesterday. I said if if all if all of a sudden we were able to say that one in thirty six kids were having a problem with coloring with crayons anything absolutely yeah. oh my god like well said one in 36 kids having trouble what like what wouldn't we do yes 
what wouldn't we do? So absolutely um, right. Absolutely right. Uh, we're saying good morning to Niles, who's watching us for the first time live, which is very exciting. And then next week, you're going to get the opportunity to watch us live for a lot of hours. Huma is here from Pakistan. I'm so glad that you're here. May is here. Liliana wow. says one in 36 and 120. I wonder what the number now is in 2023. And, and can I just say, if somebody, if, if, if you're in a conversation, cause I feel like the press has really doubled down on this and said, Oh, They've come up with reasons why no one should panic about the 1 in 36, and they do this for a solid week after the numbers come out. I just want to say to all of you, how many of you know at least one or two people, one or two kids or adults or whatever, that you know probably should have gotten a diagnosis and didn't, and and they're still in the process or waiting? If we all know two people, then we know the numbers aren't aren't what they are, right? Oh, of course this is going up. I mean, this is a trend. Yeah, and you know anyone who knows uh, epidemiology and trends, when a trend is happening so clearly that it's increasing like this, and thank you again to Taka for showing us this yeah. data, it's it's just it, unless there's a drastic change that's ha- we know there isn't. Yeah, it, the trend is going to continue. Absolutely. So it's very concerning. And somebody asked me the other day. They said, "Is this number? Are they including all of these?" self-diagnosed adults, and they use the air quotes. No, no, no. This 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 time, this year, it includes four-year-olds, but in the past, it's only included eight-year-olds. But this includes four-year-olds and eight-year-olds. Yeah. That's it. Not and, adults. And, and by the way, this is that's kind of why it takes a couple of years, is because they don't, the CDC is not reporting numbers where somebody will just jump in and say, hey, I have autism. That, right. th- those numbers no. would be crazy. Yeah. These are verified numbers and these are validated. That means you have to have an official diagnosis in order to be counted in here. And not only that, if you think about the way that they get this information, it's actually if you have an official diagnosis and are receiving some sort of funding, that's when you count. Because otherwise, a lot of people might have an official diagnosis, but unless you have some sort of service, you're not going to be in the numbers. So this is very important. Yes. And Melody, this is a case in point here. Melody has written in and said, hi, I'm from Rock of Gibraltar, Europe. What an exotic place to be from. Yes. Uh, my son at the age of 14 has been diagnosed with a, a, a <sighs> spectrum of autism. Yes. He has been to speech and language therapists and physiotherapy, et cetera. Why was it difficult to detect? Much appreciated. So he's not getting the diagnosis till 14. Yeah. And we see much more of this. So just imagine yeah. he would not have been included in this survey even if he lived in the United States. And we hear much more of this, that teenagers are starting to be diagnosed. diagnosed. Why Why would that be? Why would somebody not get a diagnosis until they're a teenager? Well, okay, so because they are, and this is a little bit sad, but the truth is that there are, it's a spectrum. And there are children who are higher functioning. So that means that, you know, some of the things that we all, like all, all, all of our viewers all over the world who are writing in right now, you are people who are somehow interested in autism. Either you have a child with autism or you know of someone with autism. So you're actually in the autism world. And if I ask you to describe autism, the majority of you will look, will think of severe autism. The majority of you will think Autism means no communication. Autism means, oh, that must be someone who's not talking or has, you'll even, a lot of people in the world will even equate it with intellectual dysfunction or disability. Now, that, when it's a child who is speaking, 
but they still have a lot of the social issues where they cannot actually uh, in any way interact with others or uh, you know, live a life uh, that involves social in interaction and social turn-taking and all of that sort of stuff, what would in the past have been referred to as Asperger's is now referred to as ASD Asperger's type, you would probably not think of that individual as having autism. Recently, I was talking to a friend, Shannon, um, in Florida, and they were telling me that his, this friend of mine said that his nephew, who is, I think, 16 or 17, mm -hmm. was diagnosed with the diagnosis I hate the most, oppositional defiant disorder, ODD, oppositional defiant disorder. What a horrible label to give a child, right? And it's one of those where you don't even ask why. And, and from a behaviorist perspective, when there is oppositional behavior or a child is actually uh, defiant in some way or another, they're trying to communicate something. The world around them is not fair. They're having a hard time with something. And now this child, finally, he's been through multiple assessments, and God bless, he finally went to, I think, Cleveland Clinic or somewhere and had a really good assessment and came back with a diagnosis of ASD. And now he is in a school that is specifically for very high-functioning individuals, Asperger's individuals, who are extremely smart in some ways and have extreme difficulty in other ways, and now he's doing great. But before, he had this diagnosis of ODD, and everybody was like, oh, this kid is aggressive, this kid is oppositional, let's just, you know, either put him in a corner or punish him or whatever it is. Yeah. And it took 17 years of his life until he finally got the diagnosis. So yes, to answer your question, it, do, it is difficult when the child is higher functioning. Well, unfortunately, what happens a lot of times is you don't, no one considers it a problem until it actually becomes an out of control problem. Mm -hmm. So let's say a child could very well go to school, fall behind, but as long as they're not making a problem for the teacher, no one's going to say, hey, this child needs some help here. Somebody please, there's something going on here. And it could take a few years. Other issues that can impact it are we deny. When we see something with our kids going wrong, we deny it. And if it's a higher functioning child who's mildly affected or less severely affected, we as parents will say, oh, he'll catch up. He'll catch up. I'm sure if I just do this, he'll catch up. And we delay the process. Another thing that can affect it is bilingualism. When there's multiple languages in the family, there's a lot of stuff like that that can affect when the diagnosis actually occurs. But, you know, it, it is extremely important. And as this family wrote, as soon as you get the diagnosis, it helps you find the right path yes. and get the, the type of intervention your child needs. I love the conversation that this has sparked. First, I want to say um, we're going to go to Kathy's question next who, because uh, you diagnosed both of her children, oh. and what a blessing um, you were in her life from what I read here. A lot of people are saying preach. I noticed that we have Lisa Ackerman watching with us. Lisa, thank you for all the hard work that you have done. If you guys have are looking for information and talking points uh, about how to talk about this with your friends and your family, Taka has done an amazing job. Uh, they actually had an article that was in Yahoo Finance which, which, you know, 
If you stop and think about it, that's brilliant. Yeah. That that Yahoo Finance is doing yeah. uh, covering this prevalence. Let's talk about that sometime when we have uh, more more time. But I love Lisa wrote in and said challenges. Tylenol prenatals are awful. Oh, yeah. Diapers there are toxic go. in addition to others listed. Um, you know, we've talked before about the Tylenol here. Tylenol, of course. And, and Tylenol is actually a good one because it's one of the ones that, you know, our pediatricians will always tell us, give your child Tylenol after the vaccines. Before. Even. Or before or even. And that, you know, Tylenol is one of the things that taxes your system, your detox, your redox system. It puts such a heavy weight on your redox system and your liver that it is hard for a child to detoxify or eliminate, get rid of other toxins when you take Tylenol. It kind of makes your system hold on to those other yeah. toxins. And by the way, on that note of other things that affect this, another thing that affects this is our cell phone usage, yeah. right? And it's, cell phones themselves, it's not about toxicity they're producing, but what they do produce, this web that has of, of cell phone usage and and the the web that exists because of that is causing our blood brain barrier the threshold that keeps toxicity away from our brains to go down so more and more toxicity will affect your brain just because we have this beautiful web of of internet yeah. and you know all, all over us and that's the other part of what we've changed Craziness. Uh, Michelle has written in and said that a friend of hers um, has an autistic son who was uh, they, the guardianship of him was taken by the state of California when he turned 18. They are not allowing the family to see him. How can we help them and prevent it from happening <sighs> to other families? I'm so sorry to hear that, Michelle. You'd have to tell us a little bit more. It's an unusual thing that they're going through and we'd have to know why yeah. this happened. And I am so sorry to hear that. It's extremely difficult. Yeah, but you can write to me if you want to send me some more details, Shannon at autism-live.com. And I um, want to say hi to Kathy. It's so nice to uh, see families that I that I saw, what uh, what is that now, 30 years ago? I'm not good at the math, but <laughs> she 80s. says, you diagnosed, diagnosed two of my children 40s. in the early 80s. 80s, yeah. When my son mm -hmm. was born, it was one in 10,000. 40s, yeah, 40 he, years ago. He was born in 81 and the daughter in 87. We started things at Stanford University years ago. The diagno diagnosing eye you had for my daughter was astounding. When she was basically an infant on my knee, you said to me, watch her die. Yeah, my gosh. But... You know, absolutely amazing that uh, I've seen you do this many times, by the way, where one child is diagnosed and and I've seen when you're not there, what happens as well. I have good, good friends that they had one child and they were busy trying to get all the services for the first child sure. and no one said to them, you should be watching the second child. Sure. Devastating. But I've, I've seen you over the years. First child is diagnosed, and you are absolutely fearless in saying to the family, and we're going to keep an eye on the second child. For sure. And sometimes that turns out great, and they don't get the diagnosis. But I have been there when you, you know, when the mother is hysterical because you have said, no, yeah. this child now needs services. But I've also yeah. seen those children soar yeah. because, because we got them so early. So early absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's a great part of it, too. Yeah. Amazing. It's tough. It's tough. And... I always say that the parents the, uh, of of kids on the spectrum, you are a, an incredible army. Yeah, you really amazing. are. Saying hi to Nicholas. Um, Niles uh, wants to know: Have you seen connections between ASD and vaccinations? 
Niles, you are a brave man to bring this up. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, 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 this is a sticky wicket, right? Yeah, because yeah. you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah, and, no I've, what and I've always stood by and said what I believe, which is, yes, I have. And, you know, it was a friend of mine, uh, his child was diagnosed, and he brought his child to see us at CARD without even knowing that he was about to see me. I didn't know I was about to see him. He, he didn't know he was about to see me with his child. And so I go in to do this intake, and I'm like, oh, my God, yeah. what's going on? And so they obviously shared, this was the first time, they shared tons and tons of home video footage with me. And it's, you know, that was the moment for me, and this was a long, long time ago, as Lisa knows, we've kind of been in this world uh, talking about toxins for such a long yeah. time. And what astounded me was their video, in this video where mom is actually saying on the video, she's, and you see, you know, the child blooming, happy, having fun, imitating siblings, talk, like, uh, one word utterances with parents and just a, a very normal, typically developing child pointing, eye contact, all of it. And then he said, and then mom says on the video, uh, you know, today so and so had his vaccine, his MMR shot. And all of a sudden, like video, she was taking a lot of home videos the next day, the next week and so on. It's a different child. It's a different child. That's, I will say that. And I've seen that now, so I always ask parents who, parents would come to me when I was diagnosing and they would say, oh, to me it's clear because there's a whole, a, there is a good group of parents that really strongly believe that their child changed drastically after vaccines. Yeah. And I will always say to them, do you have home video? Do you have vid footage? And I've seen tens of, of videos, at least, you know, 10, 20, 30, I don't know, videos that parents have brought in before and after and shown me. So yes, I have seen change. How do I fit it into my own world? Again, as I said, I fit it in in regards to toxicity. Yeah. It's not the vaccines per se. It is not the vaccines on their own. It is the overall load and it's, so it's not just the overall load, by the way. It's the overall load plus the child's low redox, the child's inability to detoxify as fast as he or she would have years ago or should be able to. So we start with a genetic predisposition of being unable to detoxify fast enough. And then we pour toxins on that individual and, so of course, the combination of the two triggers a different type of learning. And that, then those symptoms are what we call autism. And I want to acknowledge that Niles goes on to say that the mom, uh, we were thinking that Niles kind oh, of spelled differently. Um, uh, we were thinking it was dad, but it's a mom. And she said, I asked about the vaccinations because our two-year-old was diagnosed and now we have a two-month-old that I am weary of vaccinating. And I think what a wonderful thing, if you take all the things that Dr. Grampy Jay just said about toxicity, we brought up David, Dr. David Berger. I'm going to call him as soon as we're done to see if we can have him on. He has a study going yes. called the P2I study. And I encourage everybody to take a look at that because what they're finding is very, very interesting. Yes. Um, and the long and the short of it, you know, way back in his practice um, as a holistic doctor, he was, helping parents to get their kids on the spectrum to be healthier. 
And, but then as the child would become healthier, then mom would say, I'm having a lot of autoimmune stuff. And, you know, I've done my own survey, survey amongst uh, autism moms. Uh, I've been in the room when uh, the, somebody will say, how many of you have an autoimmune issue? And every single mom raises their hand. Come yeah. on. Yep. That's got something to do with it, right? Yep, exactly. Um, but Dr. Berger said, well, all right, now I'm going to start treating the moms and see if I can get them healthy. And, and those moms were going on to have second children, three children, and they started to notice that, you know, there is a percentage that, you know, you're, you're like 18% more likely to have a second child on the spectrum if you have one, but he, the moms that he was treating were having kids that weren't diagnosed. Yeah. Yeah. And so then they said, we're going to put some funding in this and start to study thousands upon thousands of live birds, and he's breaking the odds. There's something going on so there. I, I just wanted to let you know that, you know, part, the funding for this and the support for this comes from the Autism Forum, and yes. I am on their board. There we go. And I love that organization because they they produce support for such incredible studies like this. And I, I would love to have David on the show. Yeah, we need to have him on. But there, there are some results. We've done past it's shows. Very important. Um, we've done past shows with him and with um, Dave Humphreys talking yes, about the P2I Dave, exactly. um, from Kirkman Labs. So you guys can look that up, but we'll invite him to come back on to talk about it because it's absolutely amazing. And it isn't just if, you know, for the mom who's worried about, well, I've already given birth to the child. Um, there, you know, at any point along the way, whether the child is born, whether the mom is thinking about getting pregnant, there are things that Dr. Berger has found that will help um, for things to go well. Absolutely. Um, and Absolutely. not just for autism, by the way, uh, no incidences of childhood cancer, no incidences of uh, childhood diabetes. Yep. I mean, it's amazing, you, you guys. So there we go. We'll get you that information. Um, okay, let's get to some questions here. Uh, by the way, Christy says, as an educator, I can vouch that these numbers are accurate. We are seeing it more and more. Unfortunately, in Canada, there is little support for educators, families, and children. It breaks my heart. So Yama, sad. we're so thrilled that you're here. She says, I love your show. So helpful. Face-to-face, -face, uh, face, red heart shape. Yes. Uh, Melody says, thanks for answering my question. Um, and Michelle is commenting that for her family, you made the comment about a lot of times people think about autism and that, you know, they're thinking uh, high functioning or low functioning. For her family, they're dealing with a little bit lower functioning. Um, and she's going to message me the information. Uh, Melody also says, well, they did that with my son, uh, might have ODD, but we are waiting for my son to have a proper assessment. But here in Gibraltar, there is yeah. no one that specialized for it. I know. And that's another part of this is that, you know, we really don't, we focus on a lot of different areas, but we don't have enough people who are assessing. There's no question about that. I just had a conversation with our clinics in Saudi and was talking to them and you know, they're very fortunate to have some assessments and some psychologists who are doing this, but it is starting to increase pretty significantly all over the world. Um, and it's very hard to get the right assessment. And, and that's vital. Yes. Um, Melody says, what do they look for in genetic testing for autism? Oh, so they're looking for a lot of different things. So one of, one, one whole, they, one whole area that and it's nothing nothing that we have talked about let me just be clear about that there it is it would be very unusual i i'm only aware of two centers in the country where they would actually look at things like detoxification or redox cycles right now all the research that's going into genetics 
It's trying to identify <clears throat> the combination of genes that must be present for autism to be passed on. And they have identified some of the genes. I'm not sure exactly how many right now. I, the last I knew there were like six genes that had been identified. But scientists think that there's going to be a combination of anywhere between 20 to 30 different gene mutations that, that contribute to this kind of the, the full picture of autism. So we haven't really identified all the genetic components yet. But what is also happening right now genetically in genetic research is they're coming to realize individual other genetic disorders that resemble autism to the extent that, like Angelman syndrome. There are syndromes that have been identified, and some of those kids are actually being diagnosed with autism because the symptoms are very similar. And autism is one of those, you know, unfortunately is still being diagnosed based on symptoms alone. So what they're trying to find out is if there is a way to identify autism by genetic composition, and if they could do that, obviously, then like Down syndrome, for instance, they would be able to perhaps develop a test that would be able to tell you in utero if your child will have autism, which, you know, some people say that's kind of risky because it's like like Down yeah. syndrome, you know. Once you have access to the amniotic fluid and amniotic fluid and you can actually see if someone is going to have Down syndrome, there's elected abortions that occur as a result yeah. of that. But And we don't know. I mean, the same thing could happen here. I don't know. But the bottom line is it is very vital for autism for us to know early, as early as possible. As Shannon yeah. noted, one of the benefits of us watching the second sibling yeah. is that if we see any signs of this, we are able to really react quickly and start modifying everything modifying exposure to toxins, modifying diet, mo in increasing early, early environmental uh, stimulation, and also just giving them access to interventions that could turn things around very quickly. Yeah. Uh, I love everybody wants you to be where they are. JNB would like for you to be in Reno. Uh, I know I, if I could clone her, I would, JNB. <laughs> Anna wants to know, at what age is it safer to take in your child to the dentist with anesthesia? Okay. We have taken him many times to the dentist, but uh, he needs a deep cleaning, but he will need to be sedated. I had read that anesthesia is hard on the body and causes intellectual delays under the age of four. Hmm. He has had some anesthesia in his body since he was in the NICU for six months and multiple surgeries. I don't know how much longer I should wait for him to be for him to be sedated. He is six years old. I don't know, unfortunately, enough about the effect of anesthesia. If I did, I would tell you. I don't know. I I think just listening to everything you said. If it was my decision, I would probably do as much research as I can on the effect of anesthesia on, on a child, on a young child. But I would also then probably only use it for situations that are very absolutely necessary or dire, right? So I wouldn't do it for cleaning. Yeah. <clears throat> but I do, I would do it if it, there was a severe cavity that was affecting the child's behavior and, and causing pain. But if you're if it ends up that there's a cavity, like couldn't they do more than one thing at the same time? I know nobody likes to do that because of insurance. But if you end up needing it for one cavity, then that surely they could be do the cleaning at, at the same like time. at the same time yeah. and do the benefit yeah. of yeah. it. Absolutely. Uh, 
JNB wants to know, do you feel auditory processing disorder is separate from autism? Oh, I love that question. Thank you for that. I, um, one of the, there were a few things that I remember, if you remember, Shannon, when the DSM-5 came out and everybody was kind of like not happy with it. Oh, yeah. I was very happy with it. You were the only one, I, I was recall. really happy with it. And there were reasons that I was happy with it. One was that um, it it gave us access to this, which was kind of the sensory processing. It was very the very first time ever that it was acknowledged in the symptoms of autism that sensory dysregulation could is a symptom, could very well be a possible symptom. We never had that before. And it was kind of like you could see all these children who were having extreme sensory reactions um, and it was and it was common. Like a lot of the kids were reacting to either auditory or visual over overstimulation. And um, it became one of the identifying symptoms. So on its own, it's separate, right? Because autism requires a specific number of symptoms. This is one of them. So sensory uh, processing of any type, dysregulation, whether it's visual or auditory, a lot of kids have auditory processing issues within autism, which is why we do better when we present them with visual stimuli when we're trying to teach something. But on its own, it's not sufficient for a diagnosis of autism. You require all these other um, symptoms as well. So there is a commonality. It's sim similar to saying, you know, how do you interpret ADHD and autism? There's an overlap, right, where there are, but if you have the symptoms of ADHD, you don't have all that's necessary for a diagnosis of autism. You have some common ground, but not all. There we go. Um... Huma would like for us to do a session on assessment, says it would be great. Uh, Niles has uh, commented that the prevalence in the Bahamas is growing and treatment is very expensive and hard to come by, which is, uh, my heart like yeah. bleeds for you. Uh, yeah, what, uh, did Huma talk about what specific assessments or are I think viewers... about getting, I, I, Huma, tell us, I, I thought that you were talking about diagnosis, about uh, what the whole process gonna, of diagnosis? Yeah, and, I was thinking during our podcastathon, I might dedicate an hour to the diagnosis, but also screening. Okay. Because I think a lot of people are more, you know, the diagnosis is one thing. I actually started putting this presentation together for the pediatricians in South Africa, and I yeah. was first going to start with a screening and then diagnosis, and then I realized the way we Green, the red flags are yes. quite different than the diagnostic criteria. Yes. They're different. So I was then thinking maybe I should go through the diagnostic criteria first so that these pediatricians actually learn how to diagnose. What is the diagnosis? What's required for a diagnosis? But then talk about red flags and screening because, you know, you see a red flag, like, for instance, a child who is overly occupied by a ceiling fan. That's not going to become, that's not necessarily on its own a symptom of autism. Right. It's a red flag. That means it's something that's going to want, that's going to tell you, watch over this child and right. watch and see if other repetitive rote behaviors develop. You know right. what I mean? Exactly. So maybe I should do something like that during our podcast or something. We, uh, we would love that. And especially we've had a huge call from viewers saying, is no one teaching people how to diagnose with anything other than white boy criteria. 
that that you know there are things to look for in girls that are specific oh, to girls right, and there right. are specific things that would show up in the right. caucasian boys that sure. perhaps would be different with other cultures yeah that's and, true um, that's true I so a, i did a whole article on that too the fact that girls it's harder to see it in girls it was and, and that maybe those red flags look differently yeah that because i think a lot of people are very even doctors are very you know, on, yeah. the, you know, the, the box says this and I'm going to check the box and maybe don't yeah, see the Yeah, we all have things. our biases. It's absolutely true. And go. when you're evaluating a girl, you will automatically assume that because it's a girl, they're going to be more shy. Oh, really? And, that, and that's part of the reason that girls are, are diagnosed later or harder oh. to diagnose is that if they're more quiet, more oh. isolated, it's seen as a normal thing for girls. Oh, that just ticks me off. Yeah, so that's one. Of, I I should give you yes. the article that I wrote on this. Yes, I would love to yeah. see that. Uh, and right in step with that, Fortune Fortune says, "Hi, ladies. Any idea why minority children tend to be diagnosed more on the severe side of the spectrum than, for example, white yeah. children? Yeah. I've heard a doctor say one time that black boys are more likely to have severe autism than white. Any truth to that? Thank you. And Michelle has said that's a great question. I've heard that too. So I actually was with my youngest daughter um, when I got the increase, the one in 36 last uh -huh. week. And I said to her that this is happening. And she said, why do you think? And I said, the interesting thing is that it also seems to be more severe or prevalent in the African-American community, et cetera. And she gave me a term I've never heard before, which is environmental racism. Ooh. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I said, can you explain it to me? And that's exactly what it is is that from a socioeconomic perspective, you automatically have access to fewer things. And if you are living in a part of the world where you, like we just talked about, like in Jamaica and so on, this, this is, you're definitely, and it's actually interesting because you look at the, 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 the new CDC report and it shows the different states and how the, preve the prevalence is different in different states. And that go, and it also shows access to care in the different states. And that's really a part of this is that in, um, there's already a, a, a sort of a connection before, between certain races and socioeconomic standing. Mm -hmm. And then there's a connection from socioeconomic standing and access to diagnosis and treatment. So the natural progression is, if you are in a particular race or country or situation that leads to a lower socioeconomic standing, you're just going to be diagnosed later because you don't have access to diagnosticians. You don't, no one is even watching you. Let's say you have both parents are working. No one is paying enough attention yeah. that something is wrong. You go to a public school where the teacher is over, overwhelmed with crime and other issues so no one the, the attention on you is not enough to identify the problem and then even when it's identified access to the treatment is even oh. less than in yeah. other parts of the world yeah amazing. That's, that's the unfortunate uh, truth unacceptable but uh, uh amazing uh we're saying hello to autism journey with elijah who uh we so love and she's going to be hosting um, one of the hours for us so during the podcast for that's terrific we're excited for us um and thank you for for sharing um 
if you guys have not seen her stuff, you'll have a chance to see uh, her during the podcast-a-thon. She's on at 1 a.m. the first night, uh, our time, so 2 p.m. Uh, mountain time. You'll want to check her out. She's amazing. A.m. or p.m.? A.m. A.m. Bless her heart. Okay. She's doing middle of the night for us, so that's really wonderful. Um, okay. Uh, we are... Uh, I had somebody here wanted, oh, Stephanie. Stephanie said, can you talk about recovery? We're going to take on all the things today. <laughs> she says, why do people hate the topic? This, I just got into a heated conversation about this the other day. Yeah, there's so many, <clears throat> so many different reasons that this is one of those topics that people don't want to talk about. I love talking about it. I'm going to talk about it. And I, I guess I, I, I I think I try very hard to see things from everyone's perspective, so I'm going to try and not tick anyone off here by saying what I think. Um, so recovery, to me, is defined as no longer meeting the diagnostic criteria for something. It's as simple as that. So when, and it has always been uh, the goal, I guess, of interventions, to help an individual, any kind of intervention, right? You have depression, you go see a therapist. What's your goal? It's to overcome the depression. Um, you have, I don't know, anxiety. You take a medication. What's the goal? It's to overcome the anxiety, right? So any, any disability or disorder, when you receive intervention, your goal is to no longer have that disability. Otherwise, you wouldn't be getting intervention. So with autism... Uh, we do all these interventions because what we're trying to do is help the individual uh, gain skills enough for them to be able to live within normal society and thrive as much as possible. So if I can teach an individual to live within normal society and, uh, you know, be able to adapt, um, then but my teaching is also able to get this individual to not just live within and survive and adapt, but thrive. Like I am able to teach someone so well that once they integrate in school, they'll be very popular and they will have great grades and they'll go on to be some amazing person. I'm going to do everything I can to teach that to this individual, right? And whether or not it's recover, overcome, remediate, I don't care about the terminology at all. To me, it's about teaching the individual to gain skills to thrive through life. And as a psychologist and as a behavior analyst and as everything, as a clinician, that's all it is about for me, is to help every individual do as the best they can in life. And I wish someone like did that for me. You know, like, mm -hmm. I think it's a gift. So people who are on the spectrum themselves find it offensive for us to say the word recover because it makes them feel like we're saying there's something bad about them that they need to recover from. So I, you know, if that's an offensive word, no problem. We can use different words. The bottom line is if an individual is diagnosed, that means, by definition, you won't get a diagnosis of something in the diagnostic manual unless it negatively impacts your life at home and at work or school, right? Two environments. And so 
clearly when a child is diagnosed, that means that they are not able to go to school or gain friendships. They're also not able to follow instructions or take care of themselves or communicate their needs or whatever it is. It is negatively impacting their life. So what do we do? We go in and we try to change that and teach them skills so that it no longer negatively impacts. If an individual chooses, or, or when they're a child, their parent chooses not to get any kind of intervention, and they would like to live with the symptoms of autism that they were diagnosed with, that is obviously their choice or their guardian's choice. That's their choice. But those who choose to receive intervention, then obviously our goal is to teach them as much as we possibly can so that they can thrive. In some cases, if they are learning fast enough and not debilitated enough by, you know, severely by the autism and other factors, then we're very blessed, all of us, in that we can actually help the individual completely overcome all of the symptoms and live not just a normal, you know, neurofunctional life, but also thrive. And those are the individuals that in the past we have referred to as recovered, obviously. Um, but, you know, what it really means is they no longer have symptoms that would classify as autism. There we go. It gets very emotional. It gets it's very, very emotional, emotional because yeah. part of it is how you identify things. Yes. How you identify yourself and how you identify things. And, and it, it's a, yes. such a sticky wicket. And, and I'm always trying to be mindful of, because there are many individuals who are very, very proudly will say, I am an autistic. Yes. And it is their identity. Yes. And anything that is contrary to that feels like you are saying to them who you are is, is, you know, not good enough or different or, Yes. Uh, and we want to change that. And and I, I know who you are and I know who I am. And we love these individuals and don't want to change anyone. Correct. So for me, I have to put it into the education bucket. Yes. That I sit here today in front of you and I cannot speak Chinese. Yeah. Yeah. And if I were to go to China, I would not be able to communicate. Yeah. Um. And so I... But if you teach me Chinese, it does not change who I am. Exactly. Sean. And it doesn't, exactly. it doesn't make me any less. Exactly. Any different... But now I have a way that I can communicate in China. Absolutely. And you said it, you know, you, you always bring like a certain level of depth to this. This is why I love doing this with you because you are also a parent who experienced this and went through it. And, yeah. but, you know, you, you, to me as a behaviorist and clinician, it's easy to say, oh, they're just these symptoms and we're trying to teach you to overcome mm -hmm. them and so on and so forth. But when you, when you bring in the word identity, mm -hmm. then it immediately makes me think of something else, which mm -hmm. is, you know what, I have a different identity as well. I'm also an Iranian, yeah. okay? That is my identity. I am Iranian. I am proud to be Iranian. But I also hate certain things about Iran and the society that it is, what is happening in Iran. So there, I can be very, I, that is my identity, but mm -hmm. I can also see parts of that identity or that culture that are bad. And, and I want to change them. Like right now, all a lot of Iranians will say, we want to change what's going on in Iran right now, right? Yeah. We don't believe in that. So it's okay to have an identity and change. It's yeah. okay to have an identity and learn and modify certain aspects of it. You will always have your identity. No one is going to change your personality. This is also the same uh, this discussion that I have when parents 
don't want to put their child on a particular medication like SSRIs. They're worried that the child's identity will change or their personality or their characteristics. They won't. The personality doesn't change. Some of my sweet, like, I have little kids who were sweet and funny before ABA and sweet and funny after ABA, you know, and their personality doesn't change. It's just that it is, we're teaching them more and we're teaching them skills that could help them. And that's really what it is. Well, and, you know, and obviously uh, we, we make room for people to have whatever opinions that they, that they want. Yes. Um, and because I also acknowledge that it depends on where you are in this journey, how you feel about this. Right. That I had to explain to a friend, we were at an autism event and, um, and I used to use the word recovery a lot. Yes. I used to say um, that my son was actively recovering from autism. And oh, the barrage of things that I get from people who really hate that phrase. Yes. Um, and, and I stopped using that phrase because A, it no longer applied. Um, you know, that, you know, my, my son is who, who he is and he uses the words that he uses, right? Yep. And so I identify now as a parent of a neurodiverse individual because that's what my son wants to be. Want, that's how he wants to, it to be phrased and that's what we're all comfortable with. Um, but I, the friend was handing out flyers and, and she handed a flyer to a woman who took the flyer and said, this is terrible. This is horrible that you are saying this, this gives people false hope. You should not do this. And she came back to me in tears and said, did I do something wrong? Yeah. And I said to her, I know that there are people and maybe even people who are watching who hear that there, you know, there was a possibility maybe that if they had had access to something and that is untenable. Yeah. Yeah. That, you know, and I have to make room for people to be in their grief and say, I don't want to hear that yeah. because it sounds like I didn't get that. And that to me is tragic. Yes. And I always try to be mindful and cognizant and kind and compassionate about that, but continue to talk about what I know Yeah. and what you have shown me and what was revealed in our home. I get emotional about it. Because if I don't talk about that, then there's someone else sitting out watching who has a two-year-old who doesn't know that, you know, I need to get in line for this, I need to work on this, and I need to not give a hope up because there are all kinds of possibilities. Yeah. Thank God someone led me to you. And it was Crystal Shepherd yeah. who led, Crystal and Peter Shepherd who led me to you. And am I stupid lucky? I am unbelievably stupid lucky which is why I try to spend my time giving back. Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? I totally, totally. I have to pay it totally. forward. But I but I and I need to be cognizant of the fact that some people are going to go I don't want that to be true. Yeah. I don't want it to be true that maybe if I had gotten in this line and fought for this service at 4, maybe my child would be what in a different place. A whole different and side I got too. and I got to give them a hug and say I'm sorry yeah. it wasn't there for you. Yeah. But that doesn't change that for those of you who have young kids, I want you to know that, you know, Dr. Grant Pichet has found a way many years ago and has helped many, many kids. Not all, because yeah. it's not in the cards for everybody. But many children have reached the point where they no longer qualify for a diagnosis yeah. of autism. Yeah. That is the truth. Um, so we continue on. Anyway, what a lively we are, discussion. We're out of time. Yeah, unfortunately. But um, thank you all for participating in this. Obviously, we've only scratched the surface. 
We will be back next week with uh, Ask Dr. Doreen at its regular time and space. And then later on that day, we will be starting the Autism Network podcast-a-thon. And there will be many hours of Ask Dr. Doreen with lively discussions. So I hope you guys will participate in that as well. Tomorrow, we are back. If you watched yesterday, I gave the parent-to-parent talk about uh, best ways to go into an IEP to have the most successful IEP. Tomorrow, we're doing the partner to that where I'll be sharing my 10 favorite tips of things to ask for for accommodations for your IEP. Um, so that will be tomorrow. Until then, thank you so much, oh, by the way. Pleasure. You're so amazing. Much fun oh, you're amazing. Anyway, uh, and, uh, until then, uh, give your kiddos a hug from me and one for you too. Bye bye for now. Bye, everyone. Don't forget, you can watch Ask Dr. Doreen live every Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific time. We hope to see you there.